0: Do please turn with me this morning to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 28. Our text is found in verse 13. This is a well-known, but I think, as I shall explain, an often misunderstood series of verses and verse. But I read for you again Isaiah, chapter 28, and verse 13. But the word of the Lord was unto them... Precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. The word precept means an instruction, an order, a command, order upon order. And as I shall show you, there are two verses, verse 10 and verse 13, probably The first one is said in a very cynical, scoffing way. Ah, this Bible, this preacher Isaiah, all he does is speak nursery rhymes. He treats us like children. Here it is, line upon line, precept upon precept, He's treating us just like children. But Isaiah repeats the words and the phrase, probably said in some sort of rhyming poetry, in verse 13, and he says, You're right. You mock at me, but you're actually right. The way God's word works Is it layers line upon line? And the reason is we're so dumb, we're so slow, we have such hard hearts. That's the way it needs to be. Line upon line, precept upon precept. Now in this chapel, in this church, we make a lot of God's word. And I make no apology for that. We read it once and on Sunday twice in each service. And again, I don't apologize for that. Some churches, they don't like to read the Word of God. They just want them to hear themselves. No, we want to hear the Word of God. And when we read it, we often have it above the people. And again, I don't make an apology. Yes, it's symbolic. But God's word should be above us. It is our authority. It's our rule for life. We have it open in front of the church again, symbolically, because it's so important. Do you know the word of God? It's not just information. It's the source of transformation. That's why we read it. That's why we teach it. That's why we preach it. Some churches today, they talk about having a preach. I don't like that. Preaching of the Word of God. That's God's method. What we have before us in this chapter, I could have chosen many chapters, but I'm using this this morning as an example because our message and title is this, How God's Word Works. How does it work? What's its method? What's the impact that it has upon our lives? That's what I want us to see. We're not going to go verse by verse. We won't really even touch on one verse alone, but I want to show you the threads, and it's for this purpose. Just as Isaiah stood up before a disbelieving, mocking, scoffing people, so we do the same today. So we go onto the streets, and we speak before people who mock and scoff and belittle the Word of God. But that doesn't stop it being the Word of God. You see, we have a problem, don't we, in the United Kingdom today. I often touch on this subject. We live in an authority vacuum. There is really no authority now. People disrespect politicians. They disrespect People who've got high office, and I'm not saying that they're not worthy of disrespect. Many of them lead contradictory and lives which say one thing and do another. But God would have us to respect those in authority. This is nothing new. You go back to the time of Judges. There's three verses in the book of Judges, and they say much the same thing. It says this, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Just imagine in this church, let's pretend, let's have an experiment. Imagine there was no pastor. Maybe that would be a good thing for some of you. Maybe there was no officers. No leaders. And everybody decided what time to turn up. Whether there would be a service on Christmas Day or not. Whether they would read from the Bible or a different book. Whether we would have drama. Whether we would do this, that or the other. Imagine it. Chaos. Disorder. The very opposite of what God likes. God is a God of order and not of chaos, says Paul in the letter to the Corinthians. And so, God would have us have order. How do we have order? We get order through God's word. And because we're slow and stubborn and dumb, we need to hear the same things again and again. And again, it's the same message that I preach every Sunday evening. There is a Saviour. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. There's a cross. And at that cross, Jesus Christ shed his blood, gave his life. There's nothing new. I try and come at it from different ways, different illustrations, parables, miracles. Wonderful verses that stand on their own. There's nothing new. I hope not. I don't want to bring you a new message. I want to bring you the same proven, tested, authoritative message. But the problem is with us. You see, we've got this terrible disease. Self-determination a desire to be independent. I decide what to do with my life, my resources, my time. I'll do it my way, as somebody once said. That's the great problem. We're unwilling to be submissive, unwilling to surrender. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, that's your problem. You want to rule your own life. You don't want Christ to be your loving ruler and leader. Children, let me address you for a few minutes. Any child, listen. I hope you listen to all the message. You have a problem growing up in this age. Your peers at school and in all the social media and all these other things, they tell you, you've got a voice. Speak out. Give your opinion. If you don't like what your mum and dad say, you stand up for your own rights. Be very careful. God's way is to have parents to care for you, to protect you, to guide you in the right way, to live, I know sadly in this world some children they don't seem to have any parents or they just have one parent because of sadness but that doesn't need to be a barrier to blessing. Children, respect, honor those who God has appointed, your parent, your teacher those who are in your life to guide you. That's God's way. What about marriage? Marriage is largely disappearing. If you carry on the statistics, there will be no marriages in 50 years' time in this country. Look at it. 1970 to now, the number of marriages has halved. There won't be any in 50 years' time. Well, I hope that's not the case. Why? Because people want to be independent. I want to be footloose, fancy-free. I want to go from one partner to another partner, as it pleases, as my desires tell me. What about Christians? Why do some struggle with church membership? They don't want to be subject to one another, subject to those who God has put to rule in the church because, well, maybe they justify it. They're saying, I'm waiting to find the perfect church. Problem is, when you join, it won't be perfect any longer. This church isn't perfect. I hope we're a reforming church, a church that's becoming more holy, A church that's becoming more conformed to the word of God. Well, what's that got to do with this subject of how God's word works? Well, this is what's painted in this chapter. Let me come to this chapter and just give you a bit of background. And then this morning we've got five headings. As I explained, there was 12 tribes. In 975 B.C., The ten tribes in the north went off and did their own thing. Very often when you read of Ephraim, as it does in verse 1, that shorthand for the ten northern tribes. Ephraim was a big tribe. It was a very wealthy tribe. It had good land. Its valleys were covered with fruit and flowers. And so they're called fat, healthy valleys. And they had a great amount of beauty around them. Great glory and beauty covered their land. And Isaiah, in a very clever way, when you have to speak about somebody's sin, sometimes, to be gentle, you address somebody else's sin. You say, maybe not being personal, Think of what happened over there. Think of the great problems they had and what happened. Well, that's what Isaiah does here. He uses the ten northern kingdoms and then he's going to move his cannon to Judah and Benjamin, the two tribes in the south. And really his concern is the sin of God's people. You see, what happens to the ten northern tribes is they fall into sin, they're taken into captivity, and they get lost. You don't really hear much more about them. After 700, they go into captivity, and from then on it's just Judah and Benjamin who get called in shorthand Israel. Well, my first heading this morning... How does God's word work? I hope this is helpful to us as we plot it through. The first thing is this, and it's here in the first few verses of chapter 28. When God's word begins to work, imagine it being like yeast that gets mixed with the other ingredients, the flour, the water, the milk, and so on. It begins to create a contrast, a very deliberate contrast. Ephraim, woe to the crown of pride. You see, Ephraim was the best tribe, the most blessed tribe. Its beauty was glorious, it says, but be careful. It's like a fading flower. Why did this happen? Well, they started to drink to excess. They became a tribe of drunkards. They lost their minds. Look down at verse 8. This is horrible graphic. All their tables, their homes, were covered with the effects of their drinking. They became filthy dirty. Nowhere was clean. The sin of drink, and that's what's being used as a picture. I'm not going to speak about drunkenness this morning. This is used as a graphic picture of what happens when you reject God, you reject his word, and you become like drunk men and women with all the effects in your homes, Of the night before. Nowhere is clean. It becomes like a garland when I go to Sri Lanka sometimes. As a very unimportant person they seem to want to put garlands of flowers. Wherever you go, you go. You go to a school to teach and they put this lovely garland of flowers. We once brought them home. We put them in our luggage. 36 hours later, and you look at these flowers, and they were just faded beauty, just like Ephraim, just like the Ten Tribes. What a contrast. If you reject the Word of God, it's black and white, it's chalk and cheese, it's so different. The crown of pride. The drunkards of Ephraim. What happened? Well, verse 2, the Lord would come in judgment. It would be like a storm. It would be like a flood. It will later be pictured as hail. The crown of pride, verse 3, the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot. And that's exactly what happened. Verse 4, the glorious beauty. You look at the valleys and the hillsides and there's vines and there's flowers, but they're just fading now. Isn't this true of our country? Many of you come from other countries, but the history of this country is that there was massive revival. They said in parts of Wales... The policemen had nothing to do. They called it the white glove period because the law courts were empty. There was so much turning to God, listening to his word. What's pictured here in Isaiah 28 is the very opposite. There's so much crime and drink and chaos and family break up and disaster and the children are left to fend for themselves. And verse 8 is just really the crown of it all. What a sad, sorrowful picture. It could have been so different. But Let's look at the contrast. Verse 5. In that day when the judgment of God comes and it will come through a man called Shalmaneser, He was an Assyrian king. And there's so much evidence for King Shalmaneser. You go to the British Museum. You see carved out of the stone. And you see written in the hieroglyphics. So much evidence corroborating the word of God. In that day the Lord of hosts shall be the very opposite. A crown of glory, not the crown of the drunkards, not the faded beauty, but a diadem. That word is more than a crown, a royal crown. This speaks of Christ. What does Christ do? He takes the drunkard and cleans him up. He takes the unruly, independent person that says, this is my life. And that person wears the crown of Christ, who says, now I live for him. I'm on the Lord's side. I would serve the king. There's only a small group of people. Verse 5, it calls them a residue of his people. Once there was 12 tribes. 10 of them have gone their own way. And they have thought that they were fine and they were safe. So that's the first thing that the Word of God does. It gives an enormous contrast. Beauty, faded beauty. The beauty of Christ. A royal diadem. A faded crown. I'm just trying to open up this chapter and show you what it means. Secondly, there will be a reaction. In verse 9, the people hear the message of God's word. It comes through Isaiah. And they are going to react. People do that. We have those with us this morning who go onto the streets and sometimes people heckle. They react. Usually they speak nonsense. They come up with the old lines they say, how can a God of love do this and do that? But people scoff and they mock the Word of God. Well, This is what happens in verse 9. And some of the commentators, they find these verses quite difficult to understand, but I think this is the best understanding. Verse 9, this is the mockers, the scoffers. Whom shall he, Isaiah. Teach knowledge. Who will he make to understand good teaching? Them who are just little babies being fed and weaned by their mothers? He's just teaching nursery rhymes. Verse 10. Giving out his order upon order and nursery rhyme upon nursery rhyme. Here a little, there a little. He's dismissing everything that Isaiah says. He's saying it's too simple. We want something sophisticated. We want a message that's intellectual. We want a message that is new and innovative. Maybe some new philosophy like they did in Athens. Oh no. That's not what we need. The problem of men and women is the same as it was since Genesis chapter 3. We've got independent hearts that hate God, that want to live life our own way. Verse 11, with stammering lips and another tongue, will he speak to his people? Probably, this is now speaking of Isaiah And it goes on, so there's a reaction. People say, no, 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 we don't want preaching. We don't want the Bible. We don't want the Word of God. We want something that's about climate change. We want something that's about gender. We've got some new ideas. We've got some new thinking, a new way to do church. Let's do messy church. Let's do these new things. In fact, let's not speak about sin at all. Let's not tell people things that will offend them. Let's give them smooth words. Things that will comfort, 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 comfort. Come for help if you've got financial problems, we'll sort that out. Come for help if you're lonely, we'll sort that out. The message of Isaiah is the exact opposite. The problem is real and deep, and it's a pervasive problem. So there's a reaction. Well, let's come down to our text, the third heading. You see, when God's word begins to work, it creates this enormous contrast. There's a gulf between. It creates a reaction from the people that hear the message, but slowly, gradually. Usually, sometimes it comes fast, but usually it's gradual. God's truth. It's like the penny dropping. It's like the dawn rising. It's gradual. This is now Isaiah speaking in verse 13. But you mock, you scoff, you warn, you reject. But the word of the Lord was unto them. Who reject God's word, order upon order, line upon line. So let's just think of that. The word of God builds gradual understanding. That's a good thing. It's a good thing because our minds are dark and slow. Just think of the disciples for one minute. They had the best teacher. They had the greatest preacher. He had the best visual aids. He had the best stories and parables. He could even read their hearts. I can't do that. And yet, he said the same things again and again. He often told parables that seemed to be very similar. Using the same illustrations. Oh, slow of heart to understand all that the prophets have spoken, he said. It's a good thing. We need to hear the same thing. Sometimes people come up to me and say, Oh, Pastor, I found that so helpful. And I think, I preached on that a year ago. I answered that question. I've tried to deal with it this way, that way. But suddenly... The penny dropped. Maybe the variable was your heart. It was prepared. That morning, you prayed God, speak to me. Open my heart. Show me my need. You see, God's word doesn't come with force. No, never. It comes gently, it comes like milk from the mother's breast. Spurgeon said this, God does not come with a flash of everlasting light of truth upon our weak eyes. It would blind us. It would be too much. If you could see your sin put up on a screen behind me, It would be too much, let alone my sin. Too much. So, what the Lord does is just a little. The curtains are just opened, and gradually another shaft of light comes through as the sun begins to come up. That's usually the way God's Word works a soft, incoming light which is tender. And gradual, you begin to see a bit more and a bit more. You see what your heart is like. Oh, I was so foolish. Why did I do that? How could I have been like that just six months ago? Look at what I wrote. Look at what I said. I was so foolish. But in the kindness and mercy of God, he opens the curtains gently. We gain more and more confidence in his word because it keeps on speaking to our need, to my sin. Just think of some of the things that we have to learn in the Christian life. Some of you are just beginning to understand these things. We've spoken of the way of salvation. Often people struggle. They think they've got to contribute something. I've got to do something. We'll think about that tonight. The rich young ruler. But gradually I see I must come with empty hands. I must just cling to the cross. I can't do anything to earn salvation. What about what we call the doctrines of grace? Total depravity. Unconditional. Election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. If you don't know, find out. They're wonderful. But for many, they take time. How can it be that there is a limited number of those who are called, the called, the elect? How can it be? I don't understand that. And gradually, I see that none of us deserve salvation and forgiveness. And I think if there's just one person in heaven, that would be astonishing. And yet there's millions upon millions, and Christ says, whosoever will can come and take of the waters of life freely. And then I understand. And I see it's all of grace. And none of me. What about those doctrines of the Reformation? Christ alone. Faith alone. The word of God alone. And I begin to see what a wonderful system of doctrine and teaching. I need to know more. I need to learn them. I need to study them. I need to know how to prove them. And step by step, the Word of God begins to build layer upon layer of understanding and truth until I have a whole wall that's so strong and so wide. Nobody can get round it. A wall of the Word of God teaching me and showing me. Well, let's look at something else. Fourthly, before we draw to a conclusion... I've hardly dealt with the passage. You see, the people of Ephraim, do you know what they've done? There's two phrases here that just stick out. Verse 15, Ephraim has made a covenant with death. What does that mean? They've made an agreement, you know. Some of the countries of the world at the moment, they're making agreements. One country that wants nuclear weapons makes an agreement with the other. Somebody wants a drone, or this or the other, they make an agreement. The ten tribes in the north, they made an agreement with Egypt. Oh, Egypt will come. Don't believe what Isaiah says. Egypt will come. They've made a covenant with death. An agreement with hell. Well, that really stands out, doesn't it? But you know, that's what we do. We believe the world will help us. The world will come and rescue me when my marriage is broken up and when I've drunk too much and I've done this and done that and said the wrong things. The world will come. No, it won't. Only the word of God And Christ will come. And then there's a second phrase that really sticks out. We should look at this another time. They've made lies their refuge. They're hiding beneath a pack of lies. Oh, that's graphic. There's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no God, there's no Ten Commandments. There's no right, there's no what they're believing a pack of lies. But there is, there is a God in heaven, and we must deal with him now, or we stand before him before eternity is ushered in. My fifth heading very quickly really, that we should have spent the whole time on this God's Word. Just to recap, it creates a deliberate contrast. It causes a reaction. It builds gradual understanding. It challenges our false security. But you know what God's word does every time? Again and again, it leads us to Christ. Christ is the ultimate answer. Verse 16, Therefore, Thus says the Lord God, behold, look, listen, be warned. I lay in Zion, heaven, and the church, a foundation stone, a dried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Seven things, I just give you them. A foundation laid. A tried, a tested, secondly, stone. This is Christ. One who is sure and reliable. You're thinking of building your life? What are you going to build your life on? Lies? A covenant with death? Or a foundation that's tried, tested, sure, reliable. One that's precious, of infinite value, beyond rubies. One that's just and righteous, verse 17. Like a bricklayer's straight line, a plumb line. I don't want a wonky line in life. I want a straight line. I want a line in my life that leads to heaven. This is Christ. What does Christ do? Sixthly, he sweeps away all other refuges. Verse 17 the hail will come, the painful reality of hailstones landing in your life and you realise you've believed a pack of lies. The modern way of thinking has no penalties. It's a lie. You can live your life without forgiveness, without a saviour. It's a lie. And the final point, the waters shall overflow the hiding place. And verse 18, the covenant with death will be cancelled. Is there someone here this morning? You've made a covenant with death. You're living your life assuming everything will be okay. But you don't know Christ. You don't have a saviour. Your sins are not forgiven. Do you know what you're like? There's two little illustrations here. They're so beautiful. Verse 20. It's like a man or a woman who's seven foot tall living in a five foot bed. How uncomfortable. It's like somebody on a cold night, minus 18 degrees, you're trying to wrap up warm with a blanket that only covers one leg. It's inadequate. Your bed's not long enough. Your blanket's not wide enough. That's what it's like living life without God's word, without his truth, and without the one that we are ultimately led to. The Lord Jesus Christ, spoken of in verses 16 and 17. Know him. Know Christ. Build your life upon him as your cornerstone. Don't believe the lies that the ten northern tribes believed. Trust Christ's word. This is how God's word works. Within us, line upon line, here a little, there a little. So authoritative, so suitable for a foolish man like me. Let's close this morning singing our final hymn number 332. 332, the Spirit breathes. Upon the word and brings the truth to sight. Precepts and promises afford a sanctifying light. Three hundred.